So I wrote on my notebook, at the top of my notebook, when I was thinking about things we would talk about, I wrote, Untoxicated Podcast, March 2020, Sex with Debbie Shear. Oh my. Yeah. Was it good for you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you're laughing about that. I I think it's a fantastically captivating title. Yeah, all of those words are appropriate, but not maybe in that sequence. Correct. Or or we said quite that way. But... So, welcome, Debbie. Thank Debbie you. Shear is back. Thank you. I'm very happy to be back. Thank you yes. for, for inviting me back. It's good to have you again on the Intoxicated Podcast. And, and of course, the, the topic, I think I think we mentioned on the first recording that we wanted to have you back and talk about this topic. Mm-hmm. And here we are. We're going to talk about sex. Yes. Um, I, I think, as we sit here across from each other, I feel like I am at a middle school dance. Oh. And is it a you know, Sadie Hawkins dance? Or uh, did where the you girls act- ask the boys? Yes. Um, no, we've gone, we've shown up on our own. Oh, there are no okay. dates. Gotcha. But all the right. bleachers have all been pushed yeah. against the wall in the gym, and me and all the other boys are leaning up one, leaning up against one set of bleachers, and all the girls are on the other side leaning up against the other set of bleachers, and the music is jamming. And the lights are blaring all over the empty dance floor yeah. that nobody is on. Right. Um, and and what I mean by that is this is un- an uncomfortable topic. And I'll be honest, I'm a little uncomfortable, which is weird because I talk a lot. Why do you think that is? And I don't get uncomfortable, but why do I think it is? Because this is exactly the setup of this room, what you just described. The, the lights, the, the mute. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> but I want to know... Why this is uncomfortable? Because you do talk about everything. I know with with seemingly great comfort. Well, so why why do you think this is? I have learned over the years that every time I do something that's uncomfortable and is more vulnerable than I've done mm-hmm. in the past, I get rewarded for that, either by comments or emails from people, or just a therapeutic feeling that I have internally, one way or the other. I'll I've, make you a lasagna have... if you'd like. Oh my goodness! If that's a reward. I can do that. I do like lasagna. Okay, I mean, who well, doesn't like lasagna? That'll be my reward wow. for you. <laughs> I'm more comfortable already. I'm moving away from the bleachers toward the middle of the dance floor. No, I, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, obviously, this is a topic that has been stigmatized, and we've been taught what we were taught, and that's one of the things I want to mm-hmm. talk about is what we were taught, right? And it was so limited, and then we made up the rest with our buddies and whatever we could pull out of pop culture and we were probably at best 50% right for a good portion of our lives and it's just not something that we talk about openly. So I'm super excited to have you of all people here because of your comfort level with talking about the uncomfortable. Yes. So you don't feel like it's a middle school dance at all? I don't. What what I'd like to start, if you're comfortable with this, and I know you're going to say you are because... This isn't uncomfortable for you. I'd like to. St- it might become uncomfortable. No, I'm not sure. No, not not where I'm going to go. I th- I think a good place to start would be where let's let's tell each other stories about where we were educated, mm. both from the school, the mm-hmm. public school system wherever we lived, and then from whatever input our parents or whoever else had, 
at that very early age. Yeah. Can you open that discussion up? I can. It will be fairly quick. Okay. Because my... My conversations with my parents about sex and sexuality were non-existent. And I grew up in a family that I think in in their defense, they thought it was the right thing to do. And their philosophy was, if you don't talk about it, Mm. then it might not be true or it might not be happening or they'll figure it out. Why put any ideas in their head? That kind of thing. And so I received no information from my parents. And in fact, my sex ed, and I don't know if you remember this book, was Where Do Babies Come From? Mm -hmm. And this was written in the 70s, early 70s. And it was almost like a claymation, weird, cartoony thing. Um, I don't know the exact art form. And I remember looking through this book going, this is super curious. There's There's a picture of two dogs and then puppies and then a flower and a bee and then something and then two adults in twin beds and then a baby in twin beds even. twin beds okay. right and i thought well i don't really know what to make of that yeah. but um that was quite honestly what my parents gave us and so because i'm adopted and i have adopted siblings Um, There are four of us and the first three are adopted. I spent the better portion of my life just believing my parents didn't have sex. Really? And thought babies came from phone calls and laundry baskets because that's how... Puppies and bees and flowers? I mean, can you blame me? No. And so not until my mom got pregnant with the youngest sibling that I thought, well, this is curious. Hmm. This is flipping the script. Yeah. So I didn't get good sex ed. I didn't really get any in the home and the school environment, I didn't really get much. I mean, when I was, you know, in gym, we did the scoliosis test back then. People now I've aged myself, right? Well, I did this. Did they not do the scoliosis test? Anymore? I don't know if they do it anymore. I guess you don't hear about it very much, do you? You don't. I've had scoliosis my whole life. Me and, too. Yeah. And now it's oh, real wow. problematic as adults because we have bad <laughs> back pain because we didn't listen. And I just remember thinking, okay, the girls were over here learning about menstruation Who knows what the guys were doing? And then there was no conversation. It was so fascinating. I remember being in the fourth grade, and our science teacher thought he was making a joke, which he was, said, you all do know what your parents are doing when the door is closed to their bedroom, right? And I think I genuinely asked my hand, raised my hand and said, no, I don't. Yeah. I honestly don't know what you're talking about. I was adopted, about. so they don't do that. Yeah, what are you talking about? Yeah. I mean, they're watching soap operas, as far as I know. Yeah. And he said, your parents, to all of us, he said, your parents are having sex. And I raced home and confronted Did you? my mom. So you've always been comfortable with the confrontation, even back then. I Right, that's, yeah, that's, that's really that's cool about you. Okay, and, so you confronted your mom. Yeah, and I can't remember what she said, so I've blocked out that. So I don't know if she said, yeah, we have rocking sex all the time. But I'm going to say she probably didn't go in that direction. And I just remember, which is probably why I do enjoy and am comfortable talking about it, what a disservice that was. Yeah. Right? What a disservice to a young person to just not talk. But I think you said this. I I, th- I think the teacher who said that they're all when the doors close they're all he, that teacher probably thought he was on the cutting edge of education right maybe I have told these kids something that no one else in this building right. is, has the balls to tell them he might whatever. be right yeah 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 but really what I've done is just 
traumatized that kid sitting in row right. G and left seat them with four. more questions than answers. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the problem, right? When we yeah. halfway tell all this stuff, right? right. I mean, you, you talk about how your parents didn't bring it up because they thought if we don't talk about it, maybe they won't do it. Well, the limited education we got taught us how to do it really bad. Yes. Taught us how to make up a lot of the details that we didn't know the answers to. Yes. Yes, and I'll tell you a funny story, which is along this this same thing that we're talking about. When I got my period, and I confided in my mom, mostly because I was in so much pain, I mm-hmm. thought I was dying. My mom basically kind of she threw like a ginormous maxi pad the size of a raft <laughs> on my bed and said, "Here you go." And then that was it. And I remember walking down the hallway, and my dad walked towards me, stopped, looked at me, and said, "I'm really proud of you." And I thought, for... Because you figured out how to float on the raft? What? <laughs> that was our conversation. Huh. I mean, that was that was it. Yeah. So that's problematic. That's big problematic. Big time. Yeah. My sister did me the, the service of whispering and pulling me into the bathroom and taking out a tampon and putting <clears throat> it in a glass of water and said, check back in an hour. Hmm. And the water was gone and it was like the most mind-blowing magic trick I'd ever seen. Yeah. And I that was... You know, you well, can imagine the, how I fumbled along with that information. The boy, the boy version of that, when we would get a hold of a tampon, was to throw it in the toilet and, and just go, oh, see, wow, look yeah. at that. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's amazing we survive. It's amazing we procreate. It's amazing anything happens. And what was yours? So like? similar. The the really the things that stick with me, I don't I don't recall specific interactions with my parents. I think they tried. I think we probably did have the birds and the bees talk, as as we used to call it. But what I do remember was that the message, and I think primarily coming from some, some form of sex ed in school, and I don't remember if this is late middle school mm-hmm. or early middle school or late elementary school. I don't remember when it happened. But the, the communication was uh, condoms prevent pregnancy and disease. Great. And at least you got a true statement. Yes. And there was somewhere in there the sex is for two people that love each other. That's probably from my parents mm. or or from the minister or something, right? right? But it was all about, like, all the messages were the same. I've talked about this as it relates to alcohol. Mm. We were never warned about alcohol. We were right. warned about drugs, which you and yeah. I know alcohol is the most prevalent drug there is and just as damaging. But at the time, we were just warned, don't do drugs. And, you know, I have this vivid memory of Nancy Reagan telling me that um, and wrap it so you don't get a disease or get anyone pregnant. Yeah. And otherwise, good luck. I hope I hope all you boys go to the corner of the basketball court and figure everything else out. And, you know, good luck to you. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think, you know, has such a lasting impact on us. It's not right. just what happens as we try to struggle through peer pressure and the social pressures of middle school and high school and then eventually college, I think it carries way, way, way further. For sure. I agree with you. But but one of the things, I mean, when you talked about the book and Mm -hmm. the twin beds and then then the next page, there's a baby, not much has changed. My my second child, who is now a sophomore in high school, a couple of years ago, whenever it was that they did, I think they call it personal health. They don't even call it sex ed, right. which that bothers me too. Right. I, I, I'm sure that there was some parental uproar with using the word sex, and so they had to change the name. 
But at the same time, we're Mm -hmm. learning how to use deodorant, which is also important. But we're learning how to use deodorant in the same conversation, the same, what, 45-minute conversation on a Friday afternoon where we're going to teach you everything you need to know about sex. So my son said, oh, we we had that class, and I know everything now, Dad. And I said, oh, Uh, great. He said there was a video and everything. I said, okay. So I thought, maybe we're making progress. Yes. So tell me, like, do you have any questions? No, no, I know everything. I got it. And we're driving along. We're driving while this is happening. And and finally he says, well, actually, I do have one question. I said, okay, one question. I can handle that. He said, uh, you know, they talked about the man and the woman and the man parts and the woman parts. And they talked about sperm and they talked about fertilization and they talked about where the baby comes from and where the baby comes out. I said, okay, okay, that's good. This is yeah. good stuff. And he said, but my one question is, how does the sperm get inside yeah. the woman? And I the said, biggest oh, question. so they missed the sex part. Like, Absolutely. Everything except sex they talked about during the sex conversation. Yeah, that Which, is the most important question. I mean, it is one of the most, obviously that's what they're curious about. Yeah. Right? They've yeah. backed out from, you know, the uterus, so to speak, and the, and the birth. And they're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute. I mean, I remember the rumor when I was a kid about, I remember, distinctly remember having conversations with people about, is it true that you get a girl pregnant if you put your finger in her belly button? Oh, that wow. Was, so How I don't old know were you? If, Do you remember? Don't say 20. No. No. Um, I don't know. Like middle, middle school? I, like everything like, yeah. bad happened in middle school yeah, in my memory. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. I don't know if that's and I will say, hats off for them talking about deodorant, because let's be clear, <laughs> as a parent of a middle school child, that is... Front and center. It is. It's really key. That's, yeah, I, I don't d- discount the importance. Yeah, of the deodorant. But just if that basic lets washing. us just fade over, yes. you know, this other really important yeah. topic. And I'm not sure. What, what's your opinion? Where is the conversation to be held? Is it is it the school's responsibility? Well, since you asked, I feel strongly that these conversations start really young. And they never stop. You know, I talk to a lot of parents who say, well, my child just turned 12 and I feel like I need to sit down with them. And in my brain, my inside voice is screaming, what do you mean sit down with them now? Mm -hmm. Well, this is stuff that you start when they're in diapers, right? Building this culture of using medically correct terms and being comfortable with talking about sexuality. So I feel strongly that it is should be happening inside the home. Okay. I also know that that's not happening. Right. And so I think then schools coming in and resources coming in and helping, I feel like when it's done well, it's a big community effort. So you know? so the the school is at the very minimum kind of a backup plan because we know things aren't happening in the home that should be. And I look at, you know, teaching sex ed and and of everything that that encompasses to me is no different than talking about math, algebra, literacy. It's such an important piece of growth and knowledge that they need to have to go out into the world and be healthy and productive. Yeah. So it's fascinating to me. And I know I'm definitely more open and liberal. I, I understand that. But it's always interesting to me that the the really when you think about it the one of the most important things that we will have to navigate we're so afraid to talk about in school yeah that's that feels like a disservice it does and and i feel to some degree like we waste some of the time in school that could be better served right this this veers off just a little but i think it's mostly on topic i mean my daughter as a senior is taking like ap trigonometry two 
mm-hmm. and she wants to be some kind of behavioral sciences person, right? Yeah. So it's great. It's well, it is, but I, she's never going to use that. Uh, so, but but she's not. She won't know how to balance her checkbook, right. and she won't know how to change the oil in her car. And I know, I mean, that maybe nobody does that anymore. I guess, but there's some basic. Are you talking stuff. about balancing the checkbook or the oil? Yeah. Well, I'm nobody does sure. either of those things. You're right. <laughs> But how about, do we know how to change the furnace filter at our house? Do, you know, can we, can we yeah. avoid the service call for the most minimum minor right. of things? So there's a lot of life skills that yes. just aren't taught. And I don't know, I don't know that I've come down hard and fast that it's the school's responsibility. I certainly, as a active parent in her life and my other kid's life, take great pride in teaching them some of these mm-hmm. things. But but like you said, we know that it's not happening in every household. So the the school to some degree has to be the backstop. I really like what you said though about starting it young. Yes. We so something that's kind of I don't know if if I'm being too dramatic using the term epidemic, but mm-hmm. that's a big deal mm-hmm. now is the super easy accessibility of pornography. Right. And so our kids, the boys specifically, we have found porn on their phone or tablet mm-hmm. at dramatically young ages. Right. And it, it, it isn't that they're they're addicted to porn at this point. It's that somebody at school said, hey, go to this website. Sure. And so while they're watching YouTube videos about, you know, race cars and right. Legos, right. they say, okay, I'll try typing this in that my friend said. And... In the case of the youngest of our children who we found porn on his tablet, he was traumatized. Not mm-hmm. He wasn't scared because he thought he was in trouble. He was ashamed of what he had seen. Right. And so we, with our, the whole family, which this was traumatizing for the oldest, for the, for the girl. I'm who's sure they the, love this experience yeah. that's about to happen. We, we watched this CNN documentary yeah. done by Lisa Ling on pornography. It was really well done. And we all watched it together as a family, and it was it was harder for some than others. Mm-hmm. But we did it out of what you just said the the lack of information yeah. that's available. It, it's only going to lead to bad things. It's right. only going to lead to a nine year old on a website where anal sex is the yeah. featured commodity. Right, right. But that's not how they should learn about sex. Right. That's a really bad thing. Absolutely. So. Our, our roles, I, I totally agree, need to start younger. Partially that's because of technology, and partially that's probably just because that's how it always should have been, and we just haven't done it that way. Right, and I think the younger you start and the more comfortable you are as a parent, really what you're doing is setting yourself up to be that go-to person, that safe person, that open person that your child can always come to. I want my kids to know, and I understand, and I'm an over, not over-sharer, but I'm a talker and Mm -hmm. I love to have these kinds of conversations and sometimes I have to remind myself whoa slow your roll your kids do not want to sit down with you and talk about masturbation Mm -hmm. but what I want them to know more than anything is that if and when they have questions they can come to me and they know they won't get shamed they know that if I don't know the answer I'll find out for them and they know that we can have a, a pretty healthy and as robust of a conversation as they want to which let's be honest is not robust at all right but that's the reality you know and I think that's when parents do that then I as a parent have a chance to explain to my kids our family values around all of this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah keeping the conversation open because yeah. you're right because the vacuum that we create from lack of communication is one of shame. Yeah, always. There's kind of no two ways around right. that. Is, Absolutely. Is 
That's not to say that masturbation needs to take place at the dinner table. There's still a time and a place for that. Yes. But we don't need to make the pubescent middle school kid feel or high school kid feel like he's doing something wrong if he's doing right. what his body is screaming for him to do. Well, and I've told both my kids, you know, my youngest, when he was really young, I was cooking in the kitchen and he was maybe four. I can't remember. And all of a sudden it got quiet in the next room. And we all know as parents, quiet is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, for right. something's right, happening. Right, right. And so I walked into the room and we had a leather couch at the time and my son was completely naked and he was rubbing up and down on the couch. He was rubbing his genitals on the couch. And he looks at me and completely innocently, because why would he think that's bad? Right. right? And he said, Mom, this feels amazing. <laughs> you should try it. And I, in my inside voice said, oh, when you're not here, believe me, I do. <laughs> I want you to know that. But I just said, of course it does, right? Like, I get it. But let's talk about where you can do that. Yeah. You know, in your bedroom, with the door closed, in the bathroom, in a private space. Yeah. That you know you're the only one in there. Yeah. But it was, and and that's all it had to be. There was no shaming. There was no yelling. There was no screaming. Put your clothes on. It was just, I get it. Yeah. That feels good. Yeah. I'm so happy. Did you guys sit down and watch the movie American Pie right away? (laughs) When you're done with bubble guppies and what you're doing, (laughs) then we'll get back to it. But it's, I don't, you know, my thing is, I just want you to know, I hope you masturbate for your entire life because, wow, talk about what a great thing to be able to self-pleasure. Yeah. Just like you said, we're not going to do it in between the serving of broccoli and chicken. Right. Just know where it's okay to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So. I want to talk for a minute. I'm really curious on your perspective of the, the difference between the hormonal differences, biological differences Mm -hmm. between males and females, especially when we're talking about this, this young age, when we're doing the teaching, you talked about how when you had whatever form of sex ed it was Mm -hmm. that you went through in school, they talked about menstruation for the girls over here. Right. Probably didn't talk about that with the boys at all. Although that's going to in some ways impact their lives and and their, their knowledge of it is kind of essential. Yes. And not just because they're going to be, because there's going to be interaction between males and females for their whole lives, but also because if they're going to fully understand how the process of reproduction works, mm. they need that piece of right. information. That's right. part of it. Just a scientific piece. It right. is. Right. But there's also, there's a, but there's also the emotional, the biological, the hormonal. It, this is where I feel like I was done the most disservice because mm. whether sex ed or my parents left some things out or not, I figured that out. I figured right. out where the penis goes mm-hmm. and I figured out that it's not the finger in the belly button that makes the girl pregnant. Like all of that came around one way or the other. And right. I don't honestly remember how I'm sure it was the older boys on the playground told the younger boys. And then we passed that knowledge down. Or it might've been your first par- partner who said, you know what? Your finger doesn't really feel great in my belly button. Yeah. If you could move it, yeah. that would be fantastic. Yeah. Who knows? It might've been. I f- feel like that wasn't but it might have been it might have been but but the point is as a boy who talked with all the other boys about this stuff and never talked never even would think about talking with any of the other girls about this as I was going through high school and college and having these initial experiences Mm -hmm. I was taught two things about baseball Mm. I was taught that the bases on baseball are how we Represent what oh, yeah. sexual activity has just yes. taken place, right? Yes, I was First base, yes. second base, yes. third base, home run. We all knew what <laughs> they sure. were. 
And I was also taught that once I get to home base, once I'm actually having sex, the most important thing I can do is to think about baseball because the key to female pleasure was how long I could last. Interesting. Now, as a 17, 18, you know, who's having these initial experiences, um, I couldn't last a quarter of an inning, right? Right, I mean, I was pretty jazzed to be in there and this was... Yeah. This was the... You were in the game. I'm in the game, yeah. baby, and the game's going to be short. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not embarrassed. Maybe I should be, but I'm not no. embarrassed to admit that. Mm-hmm. But but the only thing I knew about delivering sexual pleasure for my partner yeah. was just drive it hard and long and make it last as long as you can. Yeah. There was no talk about foreplay. Right. I mean... We did. We talk about. But we didn't know what it meant. Right. Like, we right. just didn't understand. And well, foreplay was the first three bases. That's right. Done as quickly as, as you quickly could. as possible because right. right. you're afraid you're going to get tagged. Exactly. Out, you know the, <laughs> yeah. the old meat meatloaf song yeah. about you know sliding into third base. Oh, he's out. Oh wait, he's safe yeah, at third. Yeah. You know that's what it was like, right? So, um, my my comment question. I, I feel like. Both sexes are done a massive disservice by this lack of information yeah. on this specific topic, female pleasure, not male right. pleasure, but female pleasure, because I feel like males are are, are are more animal instincty. I don't know if that's the right way to say that, mm. but we know exactly what it takes to get to orgasm, and it is so unrelated to necessarily what it takes for a female to get to orgasm, and nobody teaches us that. So I feel like there's a lot of... Mm. Uneducated men, they're doing it wrong, right. myself included, for Perhaps. a long, long time. Right. And a lot of females mm. who have not been satisfied sexually for so long mm. that sex isn't all that interesting to them. Right, right. Am I, am I explaining my yeah, quandary no, I or my, my anger about no, this No, I feel well? your anger and I think it's justified. Yes. No, I hear what you're saying. I don't know. I feel like the disservice really comes that we don't teach people to communicate with each other. Okay. Right? So we're not saying, because we're so afraid to talk about sex, intimacy, let's take it outside of the sex, just intimacy. And so if you're not, how will you ever know what your partner wants if you're terrified to actually engage in a conversation Right. that might be vulnerable, right? Right. right. And so... That's my thing is you can learn everything you want to from your friends and a textbook, but really it's sitting down with someone and saying, let's talk about this or tell me what feels good and doesn't feel good. I have so many female friends who admit to faking orgasms, which I have done too, too many times, but I finally had this realization. Wait a minute. Every time you fake an orgasm, you're giving your partner the, the cues that they're doing something right. Right. So, of course, they're going to continue. Yeah, because and be proud of themselves. they think that they've done something right in quotes, right? What does that mean? And so I feel like that's that communication piece. Yeah. And if you never masturbate, if that's not, if that's perhaps taboo in your family or just something that you have your own, you know, stuff around, how do you even know what feels good yeah. for you? Yeah. Yeah, the communication is big. And this is where alcohol comes into the picture. Because so many of our relationships are initiated with alcohol related to them. And I'm not even just talking about people who are alcoholics. Right. Most first dates for adults have wine or beer or some kind of cocktail involved. Absolutely. And when we take this thing that we have learned and we have programmed ourselves to understand lowers inhibitions... 
I think the inhibitions serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. And in this conversation that you describe, where we need to sit down and talk about what feels good and what doesn't, mm-hmm. what we're looking for in a relationship, what we're looking for in a sexual relationship, right. all of these things, if we're drinking, the likelihood of us blowing right past that is really, really high, yeah. certainly for the male. And yeah. I don't mean to, to gender specificize everything that we talk about here today, right. but I know from my perspective, alcohol makes the animal instinct mm-hmm. part of sex just go through the roof. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons we have so much problem with consent, this topic mm-hmm. of consent, mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. males often, their 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 hearers, their ears don't work as well when they're drinking. Mm-hmm. That's not an excuse by mm-hmm. any means. Mm-hmm. It's awful, awful, awful. Right. But this concept of having an honest conversation yeah. about what feels good and what doesn't, what's allowed and what's not, mm-hmm. what I what I want, what you want. That all sounds great, but I just can't picture a couple out to dinner and after they've had their third cocktail, oh, like for there's sure. any chance that that conversation's happening. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm just speaking from my own experience drinking. That never happened. Yeah. Not when alcohol was involved. Right. And I was, you know, if, you, if you're going to stereotype, people would say, I would probably say I had more, and I don't want to stereotype, so I'm not going to. I'm going to back out of that and just say, I was more aggressive. Right? So it wasn't a matter of going, oh, I don't want to do that, but I'm just going to because I'm in this situation. I was outwardly aggressive, yeah. you know, yeah. or, or way more assertive than I would have been if I had kind of taken pause and a breath and, and had stepped back and not been drinking. So now that you don't drink, <laughs> right. do you feel more comfortable with your level of aggressiveness or... Or is there discomfort because you don't have the inhibition lower lowerer in your life anymore? Well, you know, that's a great question. I'm trying, I, no, I guess I'm working yeah. around to sober sex. Yeah, sober sex. About. I'm going to be, you know, as I always try to be, I have had one sober sex encounter since I quit drinking. Okay. And... I, for me, what happened... Besides sex with Matt, with Debbie and Matt, as it says... Besides our intro sex that we had when we started this podcast today. Just making sure, because it says it right here. It says that we had sex. That counts. That was amazing. That was two. Okay. And this was by far the most enjoyable, just so you know. Okay. So I just... Yeah. I mean, when you remove the thing that makes you feel better about body image... When you remove, for me, the thing, okay, so here, when you remove the thing that makes you um, more tolerant, more open, more accepting um, to so many things, it really has changed. And I've also stepped back and had to look like, what do I want in a sexual relationship? Yeah. Right? Now that alcohol isn't a part of it, what do I want? So. Do you have the answers? I. You know, it's been interesting. Whether you're willing to say them or not, do you yeah. have them? Have you worked around them? I think I'm them? working on them. And I've really, my struggle right now is, do I want to be with someone who's drinking? Hmm. And I'm leaning more towards no. Hmm. Um, although I have friends who are sober who have partners who still drink. And that's a perfectly fine dynamic for them. But so it's a lot of working out. And I, and I don't. Yeah. And also the older I get, the more, oh, this isn't going to come out right. The more intolerant I get or, you know, I just don't want to put up with a lot of the bullshit. And I think that when alcohol is involved, it kind of ups the bullshit meter. 
And so, yeah. And to go back to a conversation that a lot of people don't want to have, that body image thing. Yeah. You know, when you're drinking, for me, I'll only speak for myself, when I was drinking, I either didn't care or it, it just, it was, you know, numbed a bit sure, or just, sure. it wasn't front and center. Yeah. So it's well, been very interesting. I, I think, <clears throat> I, you know, I would, when you talk about you're questioning whether or not you want to have a sexual relationship with someone else who is drinking, mm-hmm. that really hits home for me because Sherry and I, my wife and I still battle a lot of the damage, not only that we did mm. during my act of alcoholism that I, I did, I take responsibility for the disease is responsible for however you want to say that, but also stuff that happened earlier on, which is a lot of what I'm kind of skirting around the edges of talking about here mm. about bad information at a young age. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I know at this point when I'm sober and mm-hmm. if my wife is uncomfortable or or just, I don't know, not in the mood mm-hmm. or not, I know that if she had a couple of cocktails, she would be in a better place. Yeah. But I want no part of that right. because it has become this kind of pure thing for me now. And it's it's so interesting to me. When I was drinking, sex I, sex was a very selfish act for me. Mm. Even even if I was trying to be a good husband and trying to do the things that I knew would make Sherry happy, ultimately I was like, "It's going to be my turn eventually, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is this is all about me." And as intimacy was destroyed in our relationship because we were consistent even when it wasn't loving, we mm. just kept going, mm-hmm. hammering away, mm-hmm. thinking about baseball, to right. put it in the old school terms. Right. I mean, I wasn't still thinking about baseball, but right. um, we were doing like serious damage to what would hopefully be the resurrection of our intimacy mm-hmm. down the road. And now, and, and, and all, all throughout that, all throughout my drinking, I never... I never worried much about the intimacy. I never worried much about the bond of love. Mm. It was something we were doing. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, it was kind of like, hopefully this is good for you. Either way, it's going to be good for me. Right, right. And let's be quiet so the kids don't hear and let's get done in time to get seven hours of sleep. Yeah. That's kind of what it was. And and now, if, if Sherry's not into it, it, for me... Like the the lack of intimacy really causes me problems. Mm. And I think that's fascinating because as a male mm-hmm. who was also a drinker, mm-hmm. I never gave a shit about that for right, twenty right. some years. Mm. And now if if she's if she's um consenting mm-hmm. and participating, but I can tell right, right. she's not all that into it, yeah. It, it's a crushing blow yeah. to my not to my ego from like, oh I gotta satisfy my woman. Right. But like I, I want to be in this beautiful space yeah. with the woman I'm with and I'm not. Yeah. And crap. Yeah. That makes, that's sad. Yeah. So yeah. the the whole, so going back to this concept of do I want a partner that is drinking, I don't want Sherry to be drinking, even though I know it will lower those damn inhibitions yeah. and make things easier. I want it to be this pure thing now. Right. Right. Which is so bizarre because 
we start out with this crappy sex ed talk and then poking fingers into belly buttons and it's the last thing from pure. Right. Right. And, and now that's all I want. Right. Yeah. I don't really know where I'm going. No, I think it's fascinating. I think if, if, you know, I can see it now, I didn't see it when I was drinking for sure. And I think we talked about this, um, a, a little bit that, when you don't notice these behaviors until you've stopped drinking, right? Mm-hmm. And you, the farther along I get, or the farther the path goes away from alcohol, right. the more these things kind of come to the surface. The more I go, oh, It's like shit. an enlightenment, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I see that now. I couldn't see it then. The lens was so cloudy. Right. Couldn't see it clearly. But now, oh, shit. Yeah, now I can see how I was using alcohol to um, deal with uh, fear of being vulnerable, right? Now I can see how I was using alcohol to deal with maybe a, a body image issues. Right. Oh, now I can see, oh, shit. Well, now that that's gone, I have two choices. I can either not deal with that stuff or I can say, okay, let's keep, you know, digging deep and figuring this out. So what's, so what's the answer on specifically on the body image issues? Yeah. I I know what you're going to say. You've got to find it in yourself to become more comfortable with the beautiful person that you are. Right. You, you, the answer isn't to go to the gym four hours a day. Oh, God, no. Have you met me? No, that would well, never I mean, be the answer. And right? that's not mentally <laughs> yeah. healthy anyway, no, right? No, The am- yeah. answer is to become comfortable with who you are. It is. And, you know, it's interesting because I have such a high comfort level with who I am. Um, I love who I am. I think I show up in the world in a way that I, makes... I love who you are, too. Oh, thank yeah. you. Well, we had sex earlier, so you should probably say that. <laughs> um, I, You know, I like how I show up in the world. I feel like I make myself proud and hopefully, you know, my fan, whatever. But we live in a culture... That still is shoving these images down, sure. specifically men as well. Talk about harmful. But women, you know, we're still inundated with what we should be, mm-hmm. what we should look like. Oh, you're aging? This is what you should look like as you age. Mm-hmm. And it is a shit show. Yeah. It really is. And I think that takes, if you have a body, you have an image about your body. Sure. I don't care who you are. Sure. And I think that just takes a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of work. And I don't, you know, it, it ebbs and flows, right? There are moments that I, I just go, yeah, I feel amazing and, and from inside out. And then there are other moments where it's like, this sucks. Yeah. Where did, how did, why did this come up today? And, and do you think it's related to all the other stuff? Like, am I getting good sleep? Am I happy with the way I've been eating? Am I getting that exercise, whether it's oh, four hours sure. at the gym or not? When all the other things are clicking, did I have a good conversation yeah. with my kids? Yeah. You know, did things go okay with something I'm working on? If all of that's flowing, yeah. you feel okay about your body yeah. too, don't you? Yeah. For me, I do. I mean, when you have anxiety and depression, yeah. it's like all of that stuff does play into it. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, you just deal with it as it comes. Yeah. But it is all so, tied together. I think, it is. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. I want to go back. I know I keep kind of hammering away on these gender specific issues but one of the tragedies of how we talk about or don't talk about sex and what happens to us and gets ingrained in us when it comes to sex and sexual roles is I know that the the girls in the the high school college age range that I was associating with either that were friends or that were partner that mm-hmm. I was if I was lucky enough occasionally to have a sexual partner 
they because there was no communication first of all mm-hmm. well second of all there was no communication first of all there was no education about what feels good to a woman necessarily mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the men are all just pounding away and thinking about baseball and mm-hmm. thinking that they're doing the right thing right a lot of women that i knew know and knew started to associate sex with kind of some unhealthy things mm-hmm. like I know I can get what I want from oh, this guy if I just spread my legs and let him go to town. Mm. Um, sex isn't delivering any pleasure for me necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not painful or awful, but I don't understand what the big deal is about sex. But so I'm going to I'm gonna be okay with it because of X, Y, and Z. These mm-hmm. are the things I'm getting from it. I, I think that's... Tragic. Mm-hmm. I think that's. Um, I mean, I don't want to go so far as to call it prostitution, but mm-hmm. it kind of is. We're learning mm-hmm. to use and and when you talk about body image, it kind of ties in. We're learning to use our sexuality mm-hmm. to get the things that we want, right? And that's really bad, isn't it? That's a well, terrible I mean, I, lesson. I can't speak. You know, it's <clears throat> interesting. I think that's such an important and big topic, and I don't think it's gender specific. Okay. I think that it's, you know, some might view it as survival, right? When you realize, and survival can be along the continuum, right? But I think, or some might say it's manipulation or whatever it is. And I don't think that's gender specific. And I say that because when you look at communities where same-sex gender people partner with each other, those behaviors still probably exist in certain relationships. So I don't think... You can say that, but I do agree with you. If we live in a culture where we're rewarded, right? If you do this, then you get this. Whatever that is that you need, whether you're even aware that you need it or want it, then I do think that perpetuates a behavior for sure. I mean, you say it's not gender specific, but all the headlines Mm -hmm. about sexually predatory behavior, 90 some, 99% of the time, it's a man being the predator against a woman. Right. But I think if you look at, you know, in the community, I I live and date within the GLBTQ community. Sure. So I think... And those activities still happen. Well, sure. Sure. Okay. Sure. I see what you're saying. So I don't think it's always in a heterosexual identified sure. dynamic. I think it's a learned behavior that anybody learns. Do you think it's... And if this is too personal, then you can tell me to shut up. But is there any level of comfort knowing that your partner is also female in that she might know what I want? Like, is there any expected intuition, whereas mm. I'm not just going to have this sweaty dude just pounding away and thinking about <laughs> baseball? Um, I see where you're going. Uh, I would say yes and no. I've I've been with women who have had you know, who have been very intuitive. But I have to be honest with you, I've also been with men who have been extraordinarily intuitive Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and sensitive and great communicators. And so I wouldn't say for me there's a comfort in thinking that she's going to know what I want because the communication piece can still go horribly wrong. And if it's not there, it's not there. And just because you're both female doesn't mean you want the same thing. Doesn't mean you want... And what worked on her last partner might be the exact opposite what I want. And so the only way that she's going to know that is if I either show her or tell her. Yeah. So... Which is kind of 
honestly, it, it causes us all this, this trouble in society. It really does. But it's also kind of the beauty of humanity mm-hmm. in that what works for me doesn't work for the next guy and right. the next guy or the next girl or the next girl. We, we're all individuals. And so if we want to do this right, the communication, whether it's yeah. talking or showing, is just required. Yeah. It doesn't matter if we're if you're the same age as someone I've been with or you're the same gender or you both had brown hair yeah. or you're both six foot two. Doesn't matter right. at all. Right. There's only one way to figure out what's going to work Absolutely. for us. Absolutely. And it's and, the one thing that we refuse to do. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, really, the older I get, the more communication becomes sexy. Yeah. Quite frankly. And that's communicating about all the things. I mean, that's kind of hot when you think about it. Someone who shows up and is not afraid to talk about what they want, what they need in a way that's respectful, right? Like we, you know, in an engaging way, I should say, that's pretty, that's a turn on. It is. And maybe that's just age. Maybe that's like what all people above 50 say, you know, when I'm 60 and 70, I'll be saying something different that all, I don't know. But the older I get, the more I need that to be the bigger component. Because if I'm willing to be vulnerable, really vulnerable and tell you what I want and need, the way you accept that information is going to set the stage. It's the decision maker it's on whether or not. It's the decision maker. Yeah. I have any interest in you any longer, yeah. right? Yeah. For me, it is. Yeah. And everybody, you know, everybody's different, but. Well, it makes perfect sense. That's, you're very cautious about generalizing. Like when, when I, right. you always, you want to say that's for me. But yeah, I think, well, but I think it's. Yeah. I think that's universal. Honestly. Yeah, I, it might be. I know. And I don't want to generalize because you know what? There's going to be that one person yeah. who says, well, that's not my story. Yeah. And we all get that. But I, yeah. So. I think it's interesting too, as we get older um, and we theoretically, I know I certainly do. I think most people want to have sex all the way to the grave. Like it's a great thing. And let's not. Right. Let's not cross this off the list just because we're Jeez, getting older. Exactly. Means. Um, I think it's interesting how. Our past informs our present and our future. Mm. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, actually. Uh, the interviewer was interviewing. It was Dax Shepard, armchair oh, expert, yeah. my favorite podcast. And he was interviewing Monica Lewinsky. Oh, wow. I think the episode was back in October, but I was just finally getting to it. But th- she talked about how she had what she described as an unwanted sexual encounter at age 14. Mm. And that was also the age that her parents divorced. Oh, wow. And, of course, light bulbs go on, right? Oh, well, that explains everything. Mm. And I don't know that that necessarily explains everything. But we all have baggage of bad encounters Mm -hmm. from the past. Now, I don't want to minimize sexual assault and call it a bad encounter. she, She wasn't specific. Whatever happened to her was awful. It was traumatic. Mm-hmm. It's un- inexcusable. But did did that cause her to, and her, the affair with Clinton, did that have any impact? I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. We don't know, right? Mm-hmm. But what I do know is when, when things happen and they don't go well, mm-hmm. that has a lasting impact on us, whether it's flashback memories or, or positions we don't ever want to, Right. Be in again or any number of things because that's the way the human psyche works. Mm-hmm. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is the importance of having these conversations at a young age and mm-hmm. fixing sex ed, whether it's the school's responsibility or the parent's responsibility, and I'm with you, it, it's primarily the parent's responsibility, but we need to have a backup plan. It's not just 
it, this isn't a minor thing. Right. This affects you into your 80s and beyond. Yeah. It, it can anyway. Right. If you learn, for instance, to use sex, to weaponize sex mm-hmm. and, and to use it um, to get what you want, mm-hmm. and that's the only relationship that your, your um, sexual organs have for you, mm-hmm. how are you ever going to have a healthy relationship later on? Mm-hmm. And so I'm not by any means picking on Monica Lewinsky by bringing up that example we've all got stuff that happened in our past that wasn't good to to varying degrees some much worse than others obviously but it's I guess I'm just saying it's it's a big big mm-hmm. deal this is not a minor thing that we're talking about right right and I think you said it I mean anything unwanted is tragic yeah especially when it's involving sex Anything unwanted, I think, is tragic. And it does set the stage. And so why aren't we talking to our young people early and often? Yeah. And it's not that you're hammering the concept of sex, but it's you're setting the stage to have maybe potentially difficult conversations, but in a way that feels safe and healthy. Yeah. That's what I want for my boys. Yeah. That whatever happens, they know that they can come to me and we're going to have a conversation. And, you know, you know, I know, once you start to be able to say words and, and talk about things, you just, it's like a a, yeah. a deep sigh. It is. It's so great physically and emotionally, all of it. It's so affirming. Yeah. And that's, to me, the saddest part when we don't have these conversations, when or they're one-way conversations, then how? why do we expect people to suddenly at some age go, yep, now I can be vulnerable and I can have this great intimacy and we can talk about all the things. Well, great for them if they figured it out, but we're not setting the stage. Absolutely. The right way. And, so. and you know, speaking of setting the stage, the Me Too movement has a major impact on all of us, mm-hmm. every one of us. And here's where I come at that from. You don't have to be Harvey Weinstein to have been affected by the Me Too movement. The topic of consent mm-hmm. is really important, and it, it should be important to everybody, not not just females who have been horribly traumatized and violated. Mm-hmm. And for them, certainly, I mean, finding the strength to speak out and and get get the not comfort's not the right word, but the the minor little bit of relief that facing your accuser. Mm. You know, that's important. Mm-hmm. I'm not articulating it well. But it's also important that we all understand how important consent is because, like we just talked about, we don't want traumatized little teens and 20-year-olds moving on to their 30s and 40s and 50s and carrying that trauma with them. It just makes the whole experience bad for all of us. The healthier the interaction can be at at young ages mm-hmm. and at, at every age, right? right. So that you don't have this baggage that makes sexual relationships difficult. Mm-hmm. So any, any guy that says, well, you know, I never, I never keep going. If a girl says, no, I'm fine. It's more than that. It's, right. it's, it's, and it's more than just a cultural thing. It's, it's a, like a health crisis. If we, if we create trauma either because of ignorance mm-hmm. or because of persistence, there's a scene, you know, the movie Grease, right? Yes. No, not Grease. Yes. Pardon me. Oh. Shouldn't have said Grease. Saturday Night Fever. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. There's a scene that this was on like TBS a few months ago and I'm just flipping through and it's on and I watched for a few minutes and I had forgotten about this. There's a scene where these three guys Mm -hmm. are in the back of the car 
with the girl and they're mm. forcing themselves on her. Mm. And then, you know, they get out of the car and kind of laugh and the girl's kind of mad, but then they go on to be good friends. Like this culture mm. of things that used to be acceptable that are no longer acceptable, that's brilliant. And it's not just brilliant for the the vulnerable young woman. Like that stuff was bad for everybody in the culture because right. it it creates millions of sexual beings out there that aren't comfortable having sex. Well, what fun is that for the for the rest of us? Does that does that make well, sense? It, I don't want that it, to sound it, selfish or No, it does, but I think what you said that's no good for the vulnerable female. What's really no good for the vulnerable female and this is a, I don't even want it to be gender specific is not teaching people consent. Yes. That's the most tragic part for the vulnerable. You know, there's no vulnerable female unless there are people who are not um understanding consent. Absolutely. That's what makes me right because everyone is just moving about their life, but the the whole thing about yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts about that, but the consent issue is one or a conversation I should say, we're not talking about that. No. In the right in the ways that we need to. That needs to be part of all the conversations, yeah. right? And so that to me is a true tragedy and that is not gender specific there are people within same you know same gender relationships where consent is also an issue sure so i i think it's a human component a- absolutely and but it but you agree it's in all of our best interest to get it right and to figure it out and to well it's human connection right yeah. and it's human inter- interaction so i think the more we can get it right the better humanity will be yeah and I do think that the concept of um, consent, yeah, it's it's a big, big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. Um, is there anything that you were too nervous to talk about that oh, you golly. suddenly just feel like you've oh, got to unleash on the world? Too nervous. That was kind of a joke because I know no. nothing really. I know. I'm like, what? Did, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't there's no like my... toilet paper at Costco, which does make me a little nervous. Yeah. But that's I'll deal with that. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I, I, you know, I don't feel like the I'm in the middle school gym with my back up against oh, the bleachers good. anymore. Yeah, we've moved to the center we're, of the room. We're in the center. We're moving, shuffling. We're trying. Well, we're trying to talk. Yes. and the music's a little loud, but it we're is. trying to have a conversation, yeah. which it's is necessary. Great. No, I love it. I love that we were able to talk about I mean what alcohol does and provides and the harmful effects about you know how it how it interacts and sets the stage for intimacy and vulnerability. And that I think is just huge. And something I'm still, you know, I'm still trying to figure out because things come up, you have to address them, you have to look at them, you have to look at your history. Yeah. And then move move through that. Well, I, I am still trying to figure it out, too. At three-plus years sober, yeah. I'm just shocked at how important that intimate connection is to me because I just never thought it mattered. Yeah. And and maybe maybe you're right. Maybe I put too much weight on gender. Maybe it's not a gender-specific thing at all. Maybe it was just I was using alcohol so that I would never have to think about that. Yeah. And now the I alcohol's think... gone. Right. And... I want that. I want this magical, loving thing, yeah. and I don't. If if it's not magical and loving, I'm just not all that interested. Yeah, I'd rather just go masturbate at the dinner table. I pre- yes, and if there's broccoli involved, I'm gonna say, get in your greens, go for it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Naked on the family couch. Either way, we've done all of those things and then some more. Yes. I mean, not the dinner table masturbation. Yeah, but I yeah. Okay. Not me, anyways. I can't really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it's it's not a universally accepted thing. Dinner, dinner table is <laughs> an important place, though. But well, we can talk is. about that at another time. Yes. This was great. Um, thank you. I thank you for your openness and honesty. Thank you yeah. for creating the space to do that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, well... I'm glad you're here. This has been good. All right. So for the Untoxicated Podcast, I'm Matt Salis with my good friend, Debbie Shear, and we thank you for listening.